Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. You're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be there for a very long time. So go ahead and uh, go ahead and uh, just put a bookmark there. We're going to be there for a while. If you don't already have one. Matthew chapter 5, we're actually going to look at a relatively large chunk of Texas morning, but something that we're going to do is, is sort of give us or give some general uh, thoughts and observations about sort of this next section that Jesus begins to talk through. So Matthew chapter 5 this morning, our text is going to be verses 21 through 48. Last week we talked a little bit about uh, verses 17 through 20 in particular when Jesus tells us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not abolish them. Um, and then he gives us this warning about relaxing the commands and, and, and teaching others to also relax them. But uh, greatness is determined in the kingdom of heaven by the one who, who adheres to and understands and acknowledges and knows the commands that, of, of Christ and acts on them and teaches others also to do the same. And then he ends that passage, the verse 20 in particular, with this this very lofty statement, one that oftentimes gets glossed over, but is incredibly important. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And for his disciples who were hearing him, they would have heard this statement and thought to themselves, How is this possible? These are the most righteous people. These are the most righteous people in our society. How is it? that our righteousness could even get close to the scribes and Pharisees. What hope is there for us? And now Jesus is going to unpack some of these things, this greater righteousness that he's alluding to in verses 21 through 48 through the end of chapter 5. And so there's a few things that we need to think about as we consider this. It's good to be reminded that, that Jesus' disciples, we can imagine that Jesus went up the mountain, right? At the beginning of chapter 5, he tells us that he went up the mountain and he began to instruct his disciples. This is the way that Jesus sets up the Sermon on the Mount. But throughout our, the course of our time together in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see when we get to come to the end that the crowds had regathered around Jesus. He went up the mountain to retreat and just to speak to his disciples individually. And, and, and as he retreats, the crowd again begins to gather around him and overhear some of these things that Jesus is communicating to his, to his disciples. So the end of chapter 7, and we'll actually allude to this later, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. This is verse 28 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as, as, not as their scribes. And so we see verse 28 that the crowds are there now. Earlier, in, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we see that uh, Jesus went up the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him, right? So he begins his time together. So imagine your, in your mind Jesus going up and his disciples following. He's beginning to instruct them. He's beginning to speak truth to his disciples. And then in that, then after that, these crowds begin to gather. They see where Jesus went and they begin to come around him. So Jesus is unpacking that so far in the Sermon Mount. Jesus is unpacking character and demeanors um, that, his, that his followers should have. We saw that together as we looked at the Beatitudes in particular. And then he shows his disciples the understanding in verses uh, 14 or 13, I'm sorry, 13 through 16 that they are the salt of the earth and that they are the light of the world. And he gives them these identities to ensure that they understand that they're purifying and preserving agents in the world. That they're, they're uh, arresting this uh, decay that is taking place 
place in the world by proclaiming both verbally and with their, with their lives that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, both in word and action. And then they step into the world as the light of the world and they expose it for what it really is, this broken, sort of messed up place uh, where that needs to be restored. And Jesus' life and subsequent death, burial, and resurrection are restorative acts. These things are going to restore the world to what God originally intended it to be. So new creation now in Jesus is being initiated both in his ministry and the way that he is, he is speaking to his disciples and the way that he's going to live his life that's ultimately going to culminate in the cross. This is new creation activity that's taking place. It's being initiated and God is setting apart and restoring a particular people. It's sort of like I went, was with my parents this week and they're constantly looking across to their neighbor who has a bunch of cars in their yard and they say, boy, they have a lot of cars over there. Um, and I'm not quite sure. They're all kind of busted up and I think it's just the, this guy's hobby. It's kind of like this classic car that's sitting rusting out in your neighbor's yard, right? It's been sitting there for 30 years. It doesn't run. It's not moving. It's just sitting there. You are like, why is that? Why is that there? Can we just get rid of it? Right? But this is what it's like. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is initiating here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's getting a hold of this old beat-up, rusted-out car, and he's restoring it to look like it just came off the lot, to look like it was intended, to look like it's brand new. Jesus is accomplishing this here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's accomplishing this as new creation. He is making new creatures here. And as his people, that we've been given the Spirit, right? We've been given the Spirit of Christ to live like new creations. And the Sermon on the Mount then is going to give us some guideposts for what living looks like. What does living look like as a new creation? Living looks like what Jesus is going to outline. These six things that we're going to look at, we're going to read about today. And these sections, your Bible might have headers, it might not. The understanding of anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving enemies. These six things Jesus is going to give us because he's going to operate as guideposts for what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so what I want you to do this morning is as we, as we move to this text, I want you to just think a little bit with me about what Jesus is doing in particular when it comes to the spirit of Christ. The spirit that empowers this type of activity in our lives. The Spirit that makes these things possible for us. So when we read verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, he says, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We see that, we say, this is impossible. Jesus said, yes, in your own power it is. But in the power that I'm going to grant you, it's not. This is very much possible for you. These things are very much possible for you. And so what I want us to consider this morning is that the Spirit of Christ that indwells us as believers is incredibly important to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. So track with me here. Track with me. Genesis 1, at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the Bible, the very, if you pick up your Bible and you start at the beginning, at the very, very beginning, and begin to read, you see that Moses tells us the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Listen, I'm going to read this. You're going to see it on the screen behind you. Listen to Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. 
and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So these are, these are the opening words of, of Scripture. The first thing that you read when you start reading your Bible at the beginning. And they're incredibly important for us as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. I think at first glance we probably read the Sermon on the Mount. We don't think about the creation narrative. But these are incredibly important for us because of the way in which Jesus is going to set this up and structure it throughout the whole of his ministry and life here on earth. It's all working towards something culminating in the cross that we see in Acts chapter 2 that he grants his, his followers, the apostles, his, his spirit. And we today have that same spirit. So this is a point that we talked way back 10 weeks ago. We talked about at the beginning when we started the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about new creation just as an idea, as a concept. That Jesus is initiating new creation. Even at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses some very similar language to that which is used in Genesis chapter 1. And so Jesus, God is creating, right? In Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the world by his word. By his word. His very words are what brings creation into existence. You know, he says, let there be light, and there was light. But the question that we must ask for ourselves now as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is, who is God's word? Who, not what, who is God's word? It's Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us clearly that this is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very power that stands behind God's words. It's the emptiness and that, that brought about something where there was nothing. So we see that in Genesis chapter 1, the very words that Jesus, or the very words that God speaks, Jesus stands behind those and grants that power to bring about something where there is nothing. And so the goodness of God is, is incredibly apparent here. It, it's incredibly apparent here. And it, so don't, don't miss this as we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Keep the big picture in view. Keep the big picture in view. The emptiness, the void that existed in Genesis chapter 1. And then the emptiness and the void that exists in each of us where that perfect relationship with God was needed. Where, was once, where that once went, where it was intended. It needed to be spoken into. That emptiness, that void needed to be spoken into, and God speaks into it through Jesus Christ, His Son. And it creates that relationship with Him that we need to live for eternity. And again, that's not all, though, right? God recreates us through the word of His power, through the life and death and burial and resurrection of Christ Jesus. That word uh, initiates something in us. It creates something where there was something that was intended, but there was nothing. But then God, once He recreates us through His Word, through His Son, He also gives us His Spirit. Again, Genesis tells us the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Spirit present at creation. But now those who God has recreated through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's you if you've trusted Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, that is you, those who God has recreated have now been given the Spirit. Have now been given the Spirit. So present at creation in Genesis chapter 1, now focused in new 
new creation. This is what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He's demonstrating how new creations live. And when we look at verse 20, we say this is impossible to have a greater righteousness than the most righteous people in our society. We say no, the Spirit of Christ empowers us to do this very thing. Present at creation now focused, or present at creation now focused in his new creation. Listen to these few passages. You can read them on the screen behind me. These few things. Those who God now has recreated have been given the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, it raised him from the dead. Romans 8:11, Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says this: if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through His Spirit who dwells in you. You have that Spirit if you're in Christ. The Spirit seals you. is given as a guarantee that you are God's child. You have complete assurance when you read the Sermon on the Mount. You have complete assurance that you are of God. And that these things are for you. That you belong to Him. Just a couple of verses later in Romans 8, Paul writes this. Romans 8, 13-15. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And then Paul to the church in Ephesus writes this same idea. He seals us. He guarantees that we are God's child. Verses 11 through 14 in chapter 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit of God gives us gifts in order to build up the body of Christ. Gives us gifts in order to, to, to grant us the ability to serve one another and to ultimately to love one another. 1 Corinthians 12. Paul writes this. This is verses 4 through, 12, 4 through 7. Excuse me. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Varieties of gifts for the common good, but we share the same God, the same Lord, the same Spirit. You go, you go on here. <laughs> you can go on for a long time here. But, we, but the point here this morning is this. I want you to hear this. Jesus Christ is the word by which all creation was brought into existence. Jesus Christ is the word by which all creation was brought into existence. And he is the power by which you, you, are recreated and restored into right relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the word by which all of creation was brought into existence and he is the power by which you are recreated and restored into right relationship with God. That's a statement. And we might gloss over that a bit. But think to yourself, all of the matter 
all of your thoughts, all of your ideas, stars that are billions of light years away, burning. God brought that all into existence. Each one of us, He's brought into existence. And through Jesus Christ, He has recreated us. And he is focusing His Spirit on us. If you're in Christ, you've been made new. Like we said a moment ago, the Spirit of Christ that was present and hovered over the face of the waters of creation is now focused on and dwells inside new creations. If you've been made new, then the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And all of these things, all these understandings are being brought to light in the Sermon on the Mount. I hope that that's clear here. I hope that that's clear. Jesus does not expect His followers to do these things without an empowering person. The Spirit of that which is going to raise Him to life later in Matthew's Gospel is the Spirit which is going to empower this very activity in the life of His believers. And so this story is unfolding for us even in this sermon. You see that the whole of Scripture is being, is being cast in this new light as Jesus speaks to His disciples on the mountain. And last week we saw that Jesus said, and He said, I have come to fulfill the law of the prophets, and not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When He says that, what He is saying to His followers, what He is saying is that I stand at the center of the story. And all points to Him. All of this points to Him. And, it, and as His followers, we are called to keep the law just as Jesus imagines it here in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. And by, by doing so, we reflect Him. We reflect Jesus and put Him and acknowledge Him at the epicenter of God's created order. He stands in the center. And so we must acknowledge Him as the center and we're trying to step out and make ourselves the center. How do we do this? How do we acknowledge Jesus as the center of this story? We obey that which He commands us. What does He command us? Show the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's what we're commanded to do, to show the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Like we said when we studied the Beatitudes, to paint a kingdom portrait. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? Does it look like a Hillsong concert? Does it look like a Billy Graham crusade? No. It looks like people living lives in the six ways that we're going to see here, living lives as an identity as salt and light, living lives of those who exemplify the character, qualities, and demeanors described in the Beatitudes. When we see these things, we must seek to bring ourselves in line with what Jesus has granted to us here in the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, let's read. we're going to read a big chunk of text this morning, and we're going to just make five observations It'll set up our six subsequent weeks of each of these of each of these ideas. So verses 21 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5. Let's read these together. I'll give you the five things, and we'll briefly talk about each one. You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, 
Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully or with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let, her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, and, uh, de- or tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so Jesus outlines these six things for us, right? He gives us six ideas, these six, these six broad strokes he paints for us about what it looks like to paint a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Why is it that these things Jesus picks? Not entirely sure. I think that there are five observations though, that we can make this morning that are going to help us figure out exactly where Jesus is going with this and why he's going there. So let me just read these five things for you and we'll break each one down. So first, these six things are built on Christ's authority. These six things are built on Christ's authority. Second, these six things show Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. These six things are specific illustrations, not exhaustive in scope. Fourth, these six things are related to correct relationships with one another. Fifth, these six things show that the followers of Jesus must be complete or whole. So first, let's take these each in turn and just break these down. These six things are built on Christ's authority. What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, so if you look at each of these, each of these six ideas, 
Jesus begins each of them with a similar statement. He says, uh, he says, you have heard that it was said to, to those of old. Right? Or some variation of that. You have heard that it was said, or it was also said. So he says these things. He begins his statements to his disciples. These are related to something that they've been taught. All of these things, right? Something that they've has been related to some something that they've been taught. You've heard it said. He's assuming that each of these things has been taught on in their world. And so he's interested in reimagining these for him because he recounts for them what they've heard, what he knows that they've heard. And then he says to them, but I say to you. And so here's a common problem. Oftentimes when we look at something like this, we read this, we might think to ourselves that Jesus wants to give us something new. But Jesus doesn't want to give us something new. He doesn't want us to throw out the old commands. But he's interested in getting the interpretation correct for his followers. Jonathan Pennington, he writes this. This is important. These are illustrations that interpret or exegete both the Old Testament teachings and, and Jesus' words together. Showing how the fulfillment, not abolishment, of chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is worked out. The only sense in which they could be considered antithetical or opposite is that, unlike the other rabbis or prophets, Jesus is not simply repeating the words of God and calling people to repentance and renewal. Rather, he is making a bolder claim than this. He is now the arbiter of truth. No prophet or rabbi would say, without getting killed, you have heard it was said that I say to you regarding God's revelation. So Jesus is saying something dramatic here. He's saying, this is what you've heard, and now I'm giving you something to digest even further. I'm going to reimagine this for you in, a, in, a, in an even more, probably an amplified way. Right? Not giving anything new, but rather giving us correct interpretation, reimagining, amplifying, however you want to say it, realigning the understanding of his followers. And so when we see these two statements, when we see these two statements, one after the other, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, right? There's a clear warning here for us. There's a clear warning here for us. The only one who has the authority to do this, to reimagine, to amplify, and realign is Christ Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read it earlier in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. Uh, Matthew records the crowds and their astonishment, right? And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For, his teaching, uh, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not just as their scribes. The scribes were regurgitating what they had heard and what they had been taught. Jesus was reimagining, realigning, amplifying the things that they had heard and been taught from the Old Testament. He wasn't just regurgitating. He's adding depth and weight to it throughout his interpretations and examples. So this is the warning. Here's the warning. There are many in our world who claim to receive direct words from God. There are many in our world who claim to receive direct words. Be aware, this authority that Jesus has is not dished out randomly. We must be bound to the word of God and to his authority alone. Jesus, being the incarnate Word of God, has the ability to move the needle here for His disciples. But we do not. We do we are not swayed by mere men who claim to be able to. And in 1521, the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was called before this to, uh, to recant his teaching. 
because he stood in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. And Martin Luther says this, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Friends, don't, don't be deceived. This takes us back to the beginning of, of Scripture also. It takes us back to Genesis. Again, where God gave Adam and Eve clear instructions that they were not to eat of the tree. And when the serpent showed up, he says, well, God has give, hasn't, just hasn't given you the whole story. I'm going to give you a little bit more here. And he tells them that they can be like God. He deceives them. And it's the same here. Anyone claims to have the Word of God and it's not verifiable by the pages of Scripture is a deceiver. So we must be vigilant. We must be vigilant to know what the Bible says and not to follow men on a whim. So first, all of this, all of these six things are built on Christ's authority. Second thing, these six things show Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. How? We talked about this a little bit last week, so we'll spend just a brief amount of time here. It shows that Jesus' concern was an internal one. Jesus' concern was an, an, an internal one. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ because Jesus interprets the Old Testament not just as dealing with actions, but in dealing with intentions and with attitudes. By showing that the simply engaging in immorality does not set one apart or earn God's approval. If we just don't do these things, then we'll be, we'll be fine. But Jesus here is going to begin to show us that God's character is our true north and the compass of the law and the prophets point to. That God's character is the true north that the compass of our law of the law and the prophets point to. In short, these six things show that Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament for us by outlining for his followers the heart of the Old Testament, mainly himself. Mainly himself. There's a warning here for us also. Our tendency is to want quick fixes to our problems. We experience unrest in our world. And we want to fix it and we want to forget about it. That's who we are. People who want to fix it and we want to forget about it. But Jesus shows us six ongoing examples of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies that are not easily accomplished. And by doing so, he shows us the intensity of the cost of following him. And not only that, not only that, but the cost means, this is the only thing I think to say this, there's no free lunches. Like, there's no free lunches. Think, think about marriage. Think about marriage. If you're here and you're married, men, we like quick fixes. But, come on, guys, it doesn't work, right? It's just, there, there are no quick fixes. We, like, we pretend like flowers and doing the dishes fix things, but it, it doesn't. Like, it, it doesn't. Our wives read us like a book, right? Our wives read us like a book. They know exactly who we are, and they know that we want to quickly fix it so we can move on to the next thing. Fix it and forget about it. Attitudes and intentions are always written all over our foreheads in marriage. And there's no quick fixes to following Jesus. Christ came and he shows the whole Old Testament is pointing to him. But that means an amplified ethic. That means an amplified morality for his followers. It means a way in living that, that is different from the world and one that is not easily attainable. One that is always ongoing and increasing in intensity in our world. And again, this means a life of 
persecution because we don't think the same things or about our anger, our lust, our marriage, our promises, our wrongs committed, or even our enemies as the world does. We think about these things very differently as citizens of the kingdom. And these, these six things show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and is not getting rid of it because these things are not easily and surely. It would be easier if he just scrapped it all and we just started over again, but he doesn't scrap it all. He keeps it. He intensifies it. He moves the needle. There's a better way, a way for us to reflect God in our intentions and in our attitudes. And not just move to an external checklist and duties. There, we'll, we'll talk more about this in, in the weeks to come. Third, then. This is important for us to know. This is just a Bible reading principle. These six things are specific illustrations, not exhaustive in scope. These things are specific illustrations, not exhaustive in scope. This needs to be stated just simply. Because we like lowest common denominator, so we see six things, and we say, okay, I'm just going to do these six things. Again, this checklist mentality that we have. I'm going to do these six things, and we're going to make sure that we live and step with these. But Jesus wants to have this principle-based discussion. We're going to move to a principle next. Jesus wants to have a principle-based discussion where he's saying, no, these six, six things are a stand-in, or give a specific illustration of what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens. Let me give you another marriage example. Um, oftentimes this happens when you want to find some place to eat, right? It's, and I know it happens to you because we've talked about it on multiple occasions. You say to my wife, why do you want to eat? She says, I don't care, you pay. And I say, how about Jai-Bee's? Not in the mood for pizza. Okay, let's go to Applebee's. We had Applebee's a few weeks ago. How about IDK? I want something quieter. We can grab steaks in the grocery store and grill. I don't have to clean up. Okay, then you pick. And then she says, you know what I really want? And I say, this might come as a surprise, but I, I really don't. Like, I have no idea. And she says, Chick-fil-A. And I said, that's 315 miles away. We can't, we can't, we can't do that. We have, we have kids and a babysitter, and that's like $100 a babysitter. And so, and so on and so forth. So oftentimes I think I feel like it, there's like this matrix that we have to take into consideration like seasons and diets for like the last six to eight weeks and like the, the moon and, and where it where it's at and then insert it into this algorithm developed by NASA just to find out where we're gonna eat. Unfortunately Jesus doesn't do this, right? He gives us he gives us some clear examples of things that we need to be engaged in. But he doesn't want to give us just six things that are meant to be illustrations for the greater righteousness of his followers, but only these six things. But he wants to give us this uh, he wants to give us this list in order to show us exactly who we are and how we should be living in some very common situations that we find ourselves in throughout the course of our week. We should not look to these six things and think that by keeping these, we're in the clear. The underlying principles are what Jesus is after. And so the next one here, this next observation, is a key principle. So these six things are then related to, this is the fourth, these six things are related to correct relationships with one another. And this is what Jesus is driving home here. This is so much of what the Sermon on the Mount is geared toward, is what correct relationships with one another look like. What's the first thing that we, we see these all have in common? This is literally the first thing that if we read these, we see, oh, these all have to do with our earthly relationships. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for enemies, all assume earthly relationships. 
the outworking of correct relationship with God as those who have or have His favor upon us, and as those who have been made new are to be given a new identity in Him, this outworking is right relationship with one another. If we've been granted right relationship with God, then we have right relationship with one another. But how does that always look? Not always clear. I'm going to give you six things to help you understand how to relate to one another as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So this outworking is right relationship with one another. We are now compelled to treat others in uh, what we're going to call an ethical manner. In an ethical manner. To understand we must be patient with one another. To understand that as humans, uh, that humans in general are more than mere objects designed to give us pleasure. To understand that our marriages demonstrate more than just an earthly exchange of goods and services. To understand that we are designed to reflect God as straightforward and faithful to our word. To understand that we must endure persecution and suffering as Jesus did. And to understand that even our enemies are made in God's image and that we should love them even as our neighbor. And to understand these six things then, the follower of Jesus must be whole or complete. We see these things demonstrating right relationship with God as new creations of those who have been granted the Spirit of Christ. We live in an ethical manner with the world around us treating others in the way that Jesus outlines for us here in these six things. And then, okay, finally then, this is the fifth and final thing this morning, and we'll draw it to a conclusion. Hopefully this is helpful as we begin to, to process some of these things together. Finally, I think this is the most important. Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is sort of the summary statement for this section of text. Verses 21 through 48. This is the summary of what Jesus is saying uh, in, in this chunk. So finally then, these six things show that followers of Jesus must be complete or whole. This is, this is a shocking statement, right? This is a shocking statement. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And seemingly unprecedented authority in Jesus is demanding what appears to be impossible again for the second time. Greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees, and you must be perfect. Jesus doesn't end all of this with a section of text, verses 21 through 48, and say, hey, everybody, but nobody's perfect. So just give it your best shot. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. And Seth, he did demand something that is seems so far out of reach. This, this should make us squirm. This is intended to make us feel strange. So the word here that's actually used in the original language here in verse 48, the word perfect here, is the word telos. So we used that in the sermon title last week if you saw that. And, and the idea here that's contained within what, what, what Jesus is saying is this idea of, your Bible might say perfection, mine does. But it's more the idea of wholeness or completion. What does it mean to be whole and complete? What does it mean to be a whole or complete person? I think that's probably maybe even a better translation. You therefore must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Or you must be there for complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Jesus is saying here in verse 48 that what is demanded is a complete understanding and a life that is in line with that. These six statements move to extra, move the external actions that we see 
right? And the anger and lust and divorce and the oaths that we take and retaliation and these external actions that we see and drive them to the heart and moves it to an internal understanding. Just doing these things is not uh, com- is, is incomplete. It's not whole just to do these things. And this is the, what the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees looks like. It's just doing these things. Externally, it looks impressive. It looks impressive. But internally, missing the point. Internally, there's rottenness taking place. Matthew, or Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 23, very specifically and pointed. He gives, pronounces woes against the scribes and Pharisees, which are really just opposites of the Beatitudes. A woe is an opposite of a Beatitude, or a pronouncement of blessing. He says this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What is Jesus saying? He said, you get it right outside, but inside, it's all wrong. So doing the right things with the right intentions and attitudes is complete. It is whole. And that's why Jesus says, therefore you must be perfect. Therefore you must be whole. Therefore you must be complete as your heavenly Father. So when we reduce the Christian life, we as Christians tend to do this, we reduce the Christian life to just not having extramarital sex or slandering people or murdering people and so on and so forth. We take in the external, we follow it all to a T, but we cultivate this mentality of spiritual pride. Listen to Jonathan Edwards, writes this. The first and worst cause of error that prevails in our day is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into our hearts to the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment and the main handle by which Satan takes hold of Christians to hinder the work of God until the disease is cured. Medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. What I mean by spiritual pride is just this. This idea that we as people, by keeping these things and and living ethically and looking like we have something that's important and no more than other people, we, we cultivate spiritual pride. This is, this is, the, this is the, the, the litmus test for incompletion. This is the litmus test for not being whole, for being partial. Makes us incomplete. When Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, what he's saying is that the internal must completely or must complement the external. You must be a whole person. What goes on inside which what must match what goes on outside. To be one way externally and another way internally is to be imperfect or incomplete. So then these six, these six statements, right? These five observations that we made. Let's just draw a conclusion here. Just a couple of thoughts. Three things. Three things. First, important for us, the authority of Jesus Christ in Scripture is the only authority for the disciple of Jesus. The authority of Jesus Christ in Scripture is the only authority for the disciple of Christ Jesus. We talked a lot about the importance of Scripture in the life of the believer. We do that a lot. We do that regularly, so we won't belabor this, although we probably should. But too many Christians are looking to sources other than the Bible for an overall understanding of the world. 
And while external sources can be helpful and grant us a deeper understanding of the text, for sure, what we don't want to do is discard everything else. What we want to do is consider the fact that the meanings of the text and things like that, these things contain no authority other than that, by, than that to which they refer, which is God's Word. Jesus is the only one who can say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So the admonition is this, watch closely what you read. Watch closely what you listen to. Watch closely what you, uh, what, 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 you, uh, what you do throughout the course of your day. There are many who claim to have authority, but they don't. They claim to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But they have no authority to do so. Your Bible is your grid. Your Bible is your grid, that you, your filter that you should run everything through. This is it, right here. We read this last week. This is Psalm 19, 12. King David writes this. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, it says. It's only by the word of God that our errors and the errors of the things we follow or listen to or read are exposed. So look closely then at the, your Christian book decisions, your Christian music decisions, those pastors and ministry leaders that you follow on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Run those through the grid of God's word and make sure that they are aligning the authority that's there and not claiming to have their own? Do they build on what's, uh, what's said in, in God's word and the authority given there? Are they claiming to be authoritative in and of themselves? If it's the latter, get rid of it. Toss it away. Stop following it. Stop listening. It's only the way, it's only, the only way to know if it's the latter is to be saturated in the scripture also. We must saturate ourselves in the pages of scripture. Second thing, second concluding point here. How we live in relation to others is a direct indicator if we are whole or complete in the way that Jesus talks about. The scribes and Pharisees failed because the outworking of their righteousness discarded others. It disregarded them. It claimed to be sound, but it was not because it was external only. So friends, when we put a show or we put up a facade or we simply modify our behavior to make ourselves seem righteous. We are partial people. We are incomplete. And how is that seen? We have limited regard for others. We have limited regard for others. Show the scribes and the Pharisees didn't murder people, but they elevated rules and regulations above human life. They didn't seek to reduce the pain and suffering and demonstrate mercy to those who are around them. They were spiritually proud people. Those who are spiritually proud see, see spiritual tasks as propping up their spiritual pride. And people become a means to an end. So the question is, is that you? You look good on the outside, but inside you disassociate with certain people because they might tarnish your image? You must reject this notion. This is not a portrait of the kingdom of heaven. You must reject this notion. And to be found complete, to be found whole, the internal must match the external. So second, concluding thought. How we live in relation to others is a direct indicator of if we are whole or complete in the way that Jesus talks about it. And the third and finally, we must not reduce the Christian life to external behaviors but we must also not ignore them. This is an extension of our last thought. These six things we're going to talk about over the next several weeks are not meant to be exhaustive, but meant to give us principles about how a citizen of the kingdom of heaven lives. 
They're not what life is reduced to. It's not a checklist, but it's an outworking. Kingdom citizens are showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like by living according to these ethics Jesus outlines. And these ethics flow from inside the believer. They are spirit and power. Remember, the spirit of Christ that was present at creation is now focused in his new creatures. We ask this question then, how are we to be complete? How are we to be whole? These six things give us an idea. We'll explore these throughout the course of the next week. It's to live in such a way as the external matches the internal. What we do externally must match what we claim to be internally. Again, next six weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of some of these things. We'll dive in deep into each of these areas, and we'll consider what, what God has for us there. Let's pray.